to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. We are in a long, protracted study in the Gospel of Matthew. Two years now, and we've just reached the 8th chapter. So if the Lord tarries his coming, I will be on Social Security when we get done. So it's going to be a while. Matthew, chapter 8. And as we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel today, we're looking at the third miracle that Jesus did just very soon after he had finished that great teaching that he did on the gospel of the kingdom. Almost immediately after descending the mountain uh, near the Sea of Galilee where he preached the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus resumed his healing ministry and he gave demonstrations of why the people should consider what he said to be authoritative. The Jews were interested in signs. Apostle Paul said that the Greeks love wisdom, but he said that the Jews require signs. They love to see miracles, and so they wanted to see all the miracles that Jesus could do in order to prove that he was truly the Messiah. And so what Jesus did was to give them all the proof that they ever needed. Was he, in fact, God in the flesh? Well, all they needed to do was to look and see that things he did were supernatural, and only God could do them. Now, we have only a few of his miracles that are recorded in Scripture. There are actually thousands of them. Uh, There were so many miracles that when Jesus was through with his ministry, it's most likely that disease was nearly eradicated in that country. But we only have a few of these that are recorded. Uh, John said that he couldn't write all of them down because the world could not contain all of the books that could be written. And so as we go through the four gospel accounts, we only find just a few. We have a sampling. And these are chosen in particular to show us that Christ, that Jesus had the power to heal and had power to do miracles and had control over all of God's creation. Now, I'd like for you to look, if you would, please, in verse number 14 of chapter 8. And we're going to talk today about the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Now, if you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse number 14. And when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and ministered unto them. When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you, Lord, as we look into this today, that you would give us something here that will help us today, help your people as we... Try to understand what you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Once again, we are looking at the third miracle in chapter 8. And these miracles are are very specific. They're recorded for good reason. Uh, The first miracle that we looked at in this chapter was the healing of a leper. And that showed that Jesus had the power over the worst of all physical diseases. Then next there came the healing of a centurion's servant, and that was performed upon behalf of a Gentile. The third miracle is the one that we read in our text here, and this is the healing of a woman. Now I want you to think for a moment, why are these three particular miracles chosen? And the first one is that leper, and that's the healing of a man who was an outcast because he had a terrible disease. The second was on behalf of a Gentile centurion, 
He was a man who was an outcast because of his race. And this third one is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, and this is the healing of a woman. And she was an outcast not because of disease or not because of that she was a Gentile because of the race, but she is an outcast simply because of her gender, because she is a woman. Now, I suppose that you could add to this that the healing of a mother-in-law would certainly be doubly dubious. But uh, we have three types of people that are mentioned here. And to the Jews, these are people that are almost in the same category. They're outcasts for one reason or another. And so in these healings, we find the compassion of Christ on those kinds of people that have been pushed away from society. Now, there's a wonderful truth that we find in this, that God is no respecter of persons. You're not accepted with God because of your social status. You're not accepted because of your race. That makes no difference to him. It doesn't make any difference at all whether you're male or female. Because no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter where you've been and what you've been through, Christ can have compassion on you and he can save you. Now, I hasten to add here that this says nothing at all about God's tolerance. God is not tolerant of sin, and God does not save people in order to continue in their sins, to just go on in the wicked lifestyles that they have. But when salvation comes, it comes to those who have repented of their sins. They've turned from all of their sins and placed their faith in Christ. That means that they will follow his commands. They will live by his precepts. They have been saved from sin, which means that they will change from what they were before. So what you can't do is that you can't disconnect chapters 5, 6, and 7 from chapter 8 because the Sermon on the Mount made it abundantly clear to us that the key to God's kingdom is righteousness. If you're going to have eternal life, the key to that is righteousness. And so when Christ saves, he gives us righteousness, he imputes that to us, and if that is not evident in a person's life, then there is no proof of salvation. So we don't want to assume here that because Christ has compassion on all different types of people, that what he did was simply to excuse their sins, and he takes people to heaven without transforming them from the wicked sinners that they are. Well, as we consider this miracle today, there are some important lessons that I think that we can learn from it. And so first today, I'd like for us to consider the city of the sick, the city of where Jesus healed this people. Now, this city is Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum is located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's just a, a very short distance from where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's about two and a half miles from where the Jordan River goes into the Sea of Galilee. And at the time of Jesus, this was a significant place because it was on a major east-west trade route. And it's also somewhat prominent because the Romans had decided that they would put an outpost there. And so when we read in this eighth chapter about the healing of the centurion servant that uh, took place there in Capernaum, this was a, a place that the Romans had chosen to put their soldiers to have a garrison. So it was sort of an important place. And Jesus chose Capernaum as to, to be a base of operations while he was in the area of Galilee. Now, we notice here in verse number 14 that Peter's mother-in-law lived there. In fact, she lived with Peter, and this was Peter's house. So this was the household of Peter and Andrew, his brother. And if you go to Capernaum today, you can visit the excavations of this house. Now, it's a very significant archaeological dig because the house there is very extensive. 
In the first century, it was used as a church. The disciples met there, and and because of that, with that expanding congregation uh, that was growing in Capernaum, people who had believed in Christ after Jesus left there, there was a huge house that was built, uh, kept being added on to. And it's very interesting when you go there today that there's a church that sits right on top of these excavations. It's built out over that area on stilts. And so you can look underneath of it and you can see where that original church was. And when we were in Israel a couple of years ago, we visited this church. We went inside and on that particular day, I remember we sang some hymns there and that was really an amazing amazing experience. Now, I have a couple of pictures of that, if Dalton would show those to us. And if you look in this picture, you can see how this church there is suspended over uh, the, the, the old church that they used in the first century. And what you see in the forefront there, in the foreground, are excavations of the extensive parts of that house where it has been expanded to accommodate that, uh, that uh, congregation. And then in the second picture, I have another one here. You can actually see this is directly underneath the church itself. And that would have been the original part that was Peter's house and where Jesus went to heal his mother-in-law. So Capernaum then was a base of operations for Jesus. And there were disciples there that helped him. And since Jesus didn't have to live there, leave there, and, and these first three miracles were performed there, that shows us something about Capernaum, and that is the extent of physical illnesses. There were many, many people in this area that were sick. Jesus didn't have to go very far to find sick people. Galilee and the rest of Israel were filled with them. And whenever Jesus decided that he was going to visit Capernaum, the numbers of people that were there were, would swell. And that's because... Here's the only one who has hope for them. Here is someone who can heal them of their physical diseases. It's the only means of help that they have. And because there are only three specific healings that are mentioned in this chapter that happened in Capernaum, we don't want to be confused and think that what Jesus did was just barely touch the extent of the problem that was there, either in Galilee or elsewhere. And so, as I've said, there were thousands of healings. We only learn about For instance, two instances where Jesus healed lepers, but before Jesus was finished, there was hardly a leper that was left. There was blindness in that country, and before Jesus was finished, there was hardly a blind person there. There were crippled people that were there, thousands of them. But when Jesus was through with three years of ministry, just about everybody there could walk. And you could understand why that would be true. When when there is no hope, When lifespans are short because of disease, the news that someone could actually heal the sick would go everywhere. All the sick people would hear about it because that was buzzing in their communities. The people that had sick in their families, they would hear about this and they would bring them to Jesus. Post haste, they would get to him while he was there. So Jesus had this very widespread healing ministry that encompassed thousands of people. But despite the extent of all that physical illness and the abundant of uh, supernatural healings that are found in Scripture, we actually also find here the evidence of spiritual ignorance. The sick are brought to Jesus. The infirm would hobble to get to him as best that they could. But when they came to him, they sought him mostly for the healing and not for the salvation. Now, one of the things that we tend to believe is that everybody that came to Jesus must have had some kind of great faith, that they, uh, that they 
showed some kind of great faith in believing that he could heal them. And every person who came to them, uh, came to him must have had that kind of faith. But you know, we actually don't have any evidence for that in Scripture. I mean, the miracles that are recorded seem to run in that category, and that's because the importance of Jesus' ministry was not in the healing of the sicknesses, but the importance of his ministry was that he reached out to people that are dying in their sins. And that's because no matter how bad you are off physically, the most important part of a person is how well off you are spiritually. You see, the body, the body that we inhabit was built to last forever. Scriptures teach us that even this body is going to be resurrected after we die. And the scripture says that some people are going to be raised to be everlastingly blissful, and some are going to be raised to be everlastingly, everlastingly blasted. Some people are raised from, their, from the dead bodies, and their spirits are taken into heaven, and some of them die, and they go into hell. And so where you are spiritually is far more important than where you are physically. But we see here that with all these many healings that were done, there weren't actually very many people that were saved. People uh, came to Jesus. He did miracle after miracle. Countless of them were done in Capernaum. And yet there were actually few that believed in Capernaum. Now, how do we know that? Well, because Jesus said that if all the miracles that had been done in Capernaum had been done in a city like Sodom, he said they would have repented of their sins. Now, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 23, he says, And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. And we remember what happened to Sodom, don't we? There in the book of Genesis, it tells us that uh, God told Abraham that if only ten righteous people could be found in Sodom, that God wouldn't destroy that city. But ten righteous people couldn't be found. And so God rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom. He burned that place to the ground, and you can't find a trace of it today. And it kind of makes you wonder, couldn't there be found ten righteous people in Capernaum? After all the healings and all the mighty miracles, why didn't all of those people turn to Christ? Why wasn't the whole city brought to him? And in fact, with the thousands of healings that were done around Galilee and all those that were done in the south in Judea, the spiritual ignorance still remained. Illness had been wiped out, but spiritual ignorance remained. And finally, those people who saw all the miracles that Jesus did, they are the ones who crucified the Christ. Now secondly, there's something else that we would note here in this scripture, and that is the certainty of suffering. Now, we do find healings in Scripture, and this is why, of course, that we're dealing with the Scripture today. Jesus did heal people, and the ability to do that was confirmation of his deity. Nobody had seen miracles like this before. I mean, the worst forms of leprosy, nobody ever got over that. They died of that disease. And, and those that were near to death, they didn't get up and walk away. And certainly those that were dead didn't get up and speak. And they didn't come out of the tombs after they had died. And so from these widespread healings, what we read in the Scripture, the same mistake that was made in the first century is still being made today. Because what people are looking for today is still that same miracle-working campaign. 
And they think that that is the emphasis of Jesus' ministry. And so they're looking for physical healing. And there are many people today that insist that that is a part of the Christian faith. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about that today because I think it's something that's familiar to all, to all of us here. And that is the healings that people claim to be doing today and, and uh, the faith healers and so on that you see. Now, there are two very important points that need to be made about this. And the first one is there is no promise of physical healing. Not one time in the Gospels do we find a promise that people who are saved will be healed of physical diseases. In fact, in Scripture, you're only going to find one promise as it concerns your physical body. And the one promise the Scripture gives is that you will die. No matter what, you're going to die. No matter how healthy that you are, the Scripture says even Christians will die. And it says, it is appointed unto man once to die. That's what Hebrews 9 verse 27 says. And there's a promise that you can take to the bank. If the Lord tarries his, his coming, then you can be sure of this promise that you are going to die. And not one time in the Scripture that it says that you will live, at least as far as physical life is concerned. So you're not promised that as a Christian you're going to have protection from colds and cancer. You're not guaranteed relief from any physical illness. Now what we do know, of course, is that God still can heal from disease... And this is why we have our prayer page that we put out on Wednesday nights. We have all sorts of people that are listed there, and we pray for them. And we have seen times when God has raised people from illnesses. And there are times when doctors have said, there is no more hope. There's nothing that we can do. This is the end for this person. And we prayed for those kind of people, and we've seen that God has raised them up off of their sick beds. And that's a wonderful thing. But you don't have the promise that God is always going to do it. There is no inherent promise in the gospel that you won't go through physical suffering. Now, I'm not going to read the scripture to you again, but I've made reference to it, reference to it maybe last week or the week before. And that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And there, Paul was dealing with a physical infirmity. He was a great man of faith. And I'm sure he was greater in faith than any person that's in the building today. Certainly greater than any faith healer that you ever heard of. And yet God did not heal that great man of faith from his physical disease. In fact, it might even be true that God's the one who gave him that disease. And then there are other great servants in the Bible that weren't healed. Timothy suffered a, uh, a stomach ailment. Uh, Epaphroditus was sick unto death. And Paul, who was that great man of God who had healed many people could not do anything at all with the illness that Epaphroditus did. Instead, Paul had to leave him behind sick and near to death. So Paul never taught this, and as well as any of the other apostles, none of them ever taught that we have a guaranteed promise of healing, and Jesus never said it either. Salvation does not necessarily bring a person physical healing. And Paul also wrote in the book of Philippians that suffering has been appointed by God. And so that tells us that there are afflictions that come from heaven. Physical illnesses, mental things that come, spiritual things. And so because Jesus healed some people does not mean that all will be healed. Now the faith healer says, if you have enough faith, you will be healed. But among all those multiple thousands that were in Israel, not many of them had any faith at all. And the evidence of it is the lack of followers of Jesus in the end. 
So you can count that out. If you think that you're going to be saved and you're going to come to Christ because he's going to bail you out of your sicknesses, then you come to him for the wrong reasons. Now, he is concerned about your eternal soul. And what he's interested in is saving you from your soul sickness. And he's not really in the business of healing from the physical disease. He's in the business of healing from sin. Now, when he saves you, he might decide that he will save you from sickness. But most of us can attest that more likely than not, he doesn't do that. But I can give you this. He does promise that if you have a sickness, that he gives you the grace to go through it. And what he can do is that he will teach you the comforts about heaven and how far important, more important that is than anything that happens to you in this physical life. So that's the first thing that we need to point out here about Scripture. There is no promise in the Scriptures anywhere that there will be physical healing. Now, another thing that we would look at here is that there is no proof for faith healers. Have you ever taken the time to notice the difference between the ways that Jesus healed and the way that these so-called faith healers heal? You know, there are millions of people that blindly follow these guys. They collect millions of dollars. And people are duped by their shenanigans. And they have a promise that these people teach that there is healing in God's atonement. So let's take a moment to look at the comparison between the two. When Jesus healed, it's always healing by a spoken word or merely by a touch. Peter's mother-in-law, as we see here, was just received a touch on the hand, then her fever left. So there wasn't any hocus-pocus here. He didn't blow on her. He didn't slay her in the spirit like you see some of the faith healers do. You know, one time I saw on television, uh, Benny Hinn came and he set up fans all along the front of the auditorium, and he blew into those fans. And this breath went out over all the congregation, and they just fell over, slain in the spirit. I don't, I don't know how much garlic you have to eat to do that, but that's what, that's what happened to all those people. Well, we don't find anything like that. We never see Jesus going around, prating around in a white suit, healing people, making a big production of what he's doing. He just touched people, or he just gently spoke to them. And when Jesus healed, it was always total healing. There wasn't a physical regimen for them to go through, a, a get-well regimen to follow. There weren't any steps in the healing process. People didn't gradually get better. On the spot, right then, Jesus healed them, and they were perfectly whole. Think about how he raised people from the dead. I mean, you don't gradually come back from the dead, do you? I mean, there aren't any degrees of dead. You you can't be less dead than dead. And so, Jesus just spoke to people. Another thing that Jesus didn't do, he didn't ask people to fill, fill out a card to get in his healing line. Jesus didn't pick out certain cases. He took all comers. He took everybody that was sick. And it didn't matter who they were. Uh, It didn't matter what kind of diseases they had. He didn't just heal from contagious diseases, but Jesus also healed from congenital defects. Jesus also healed those who had hereditary ailments. And he took people that were blind from birth, and he put eyes in those sockets where there were none. He took legs that were deformed from birth, and he straightened them out. He put flesh on the bones. He put muscles on there. He took people that were hobbled with club feet, and he fixed that. He took quadriplegics that had no feeling in their bodies, that came to him carried on pallets. And when Jesus was done with them, they had the feeling. They picked up their pallets, and they carried them home with them. Jesus healed them completely. And you know something else about Jesus? He never took an offering. 
Never read of one instance in Scripture where Jesus collected a dime. Now, there were people that helped him, but what Jesus didn't do when he was through with the healing campaign and when the night was over, he didn't jump into his golden chariot and have the chauffeur drive him to his house in his gated community. Now, what we find out about Jesus is that the only thing that he owned was the shirt on his back and the sandals that were on his feet. And when he was crucified, they took those away from him. Now, that's far different from the faith healers that you see today. And then when you think about the faith healers also, did you know that there has never been one verified miracle among them? Did you know that there's never been a case where a doctor examined someone who had been healed in one of those campaigns and he pronounced that a miracle had occurred? Do you remember when we were talking about the healing of the leper that Jesus told him to go and show himself to the priest? And why did he do that? Because that priest would have to inspect him. That priest would have to pull out the Mosaic law and go through all the rituals and go through all the time that it took to examine him very closely to see that there was no leprosy in him. And it would be the priest who would be the one who declared that he was free of his leprosy. And so Jesus said, you go show yourself to the priest. And he's like the chief surgeon, you might say. And when he says the miracle has occurred, then everybody will know for sure that there has been a miracle. But do you ever hear about one of these guys sending someone who had been healed of their disease or what they claim, and they send them over to the Mayo Clinic? And they said, let them look at you and let them show you that you've really been healed. Let them verify it. They don't say, now go show yourself to the Surgeon General of the United States, and he's going to declare that a miracle has occurred. It's verified. No, there aren't any verified miracles among them. In fact, there was one of these fellows named Robert Tilton in Texas, I believe it was, that uh, he used to tote his sick people along with him. And so there were people, the same people, getting healed in every healing campaign. He just brought the sick people along with him. And then you think about another thing. Why do these faith healers rent out huge auditoriums to heal people? I mean, folks, if you want to heal people, you can go cheap. You can go to Kaiser Hospital, and you can go to Memorial Hospital, and you can walk up and down the aisles all day long and heal all the people that you want. You don't have to rent an auditorium to heal anybody. You just go in there and heal all those sick people. But you won't find them doing that. Instead, they rent out a Coliseum in Dallas or New York or Los Angeles. Never once did they ever make a trip to a hospital. What's wrong with that? I mean, are there no people of faith that are in hospitals? They would gladly welcome someone who could heal them. And that's where Jesus would have gone. Now, there weren't any hospitals in the time of Jesus, but do you think that he would have skipped into uh, Capernaum without hitting the hospital first? I mean, if he's looking for sick people, where do you go? Go to the hospital. There's people there that need to be healed. But you don't find that happening with the faith healers. So these people show up for the healing campaigns. They send in their money. They get their miracle spring water and their miracle medallions and their miracle prayer claws. And at one time, Benny Hinn told people, don't bury your dead loved ones. He said, you just drag them over the TV and drape their arms over the television set, and I'm going to raise them from the dead. Folks, that's nothing but straight from the devil. That is nothing but pure fantasy. They lie about it. And why did they do it? Well, there's only one reason for that. It makes them rich. And that's never going to change. These are the very same people that years ago were selling snake oil out of the back of a wagon. 
And now what do we find? They've gone uptown. Now they've gotten big. Now they've got the Colosseums. Now they go and heal people there. And another thing, if you want to look at this, I might, I'm on a roll here. I might as well talk about this too. You know, what about the Pope? You know, what was it, last month, or maybe it was the month before, when he was in England, and the Pope charged $40 for people to get into the Mass in order to watch him say Mass. You know, we talk about the charismatics, and we think about the, how they've got this thing of healing going on here. Well, the Roman Catholics have cornered the market on that, and they did it a long time ago. You think about the many places in the world where people go for their pilgrimages. And they go there to get their miracles. And right next to the place where they have all these apparitions of the Virgin Mary and things that are supposed to have happened there, they have their little trinket shops. And you go into the trinket shop, and there you can buy your special little icons to rub your miracle little statues that you can worship. Rub them for your miracle. They'll sell you the miracle rosary beads and all of that stuff. You remember there was a few years ago that there was a, a, a person that fixed a grilled cheese sandwich. And on that sandwich, there was uh, burnt into it an impression of the Virgin Mary. And they sold it for $28,000. I've been burning ch- grilled cheese sandwiches ever since, and I still have not been able to come up with that. But you have people that, that are looking for some kind of miracle. This is the way they think it, they, things operate. We have to come for the miracle. And then there was that other one, I think, where a person had some dirt on their screen door in the trailer park. And the light shining through their screen door cast a shadow on the trailer next door of the Virgin Mary. And so there were people coming from all over the place to view that shadow that had been cast on that other trailer next door. This is what people think. They think, you know, we can get our healing. This is part of God's promise. We can get all of this. All of that's wild and fantastic. It has nothing at all to do with Christ. And friends, it has nothing at all to do with faith. Well, the question then, I think, would be, where do they get these ideas? I mean, aside from the fact that religion is a cash cow, how would anybody ever come up with such an idea? Where do they get these kinds of doctrines? Well, let's take a look right here in the Scripture. Look, look at verse 16, first of all. When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. Now, I want to stop right there for just a minute and make a comment here in passing. Hold on to the other thought for just a minute. That, and we'll get to that, come back to it. But do you see here? It says, when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. Why did they wait until the evening to come to him? Why? Well, in the book of Luke, it says there that Jesus was preaching in Capernaum on the Sabbath days. Now, so they waited until sundown, until the evening was come, in order to bring people to Jesus to be healed. And that's because the scribes and the Pharisees had taught them, you can't pick up a sick person on the Sabbath day. You can't carry somebody to Jesus to be healed on the Sabbath day because then you would be sinning. These people are so mixed up about righteousness, what it takes to really be righteous with God, that they had these crazy kinds of notions that doing something like having somebody healed on the Sabbath day, that would be sin. And they're not about to have a miracle performed and at the same time shoot themselves in the foot and be condemned by the Pharisees. That just shows you again how much spiritual ignorance that there was. 
Now, let me go back here uh, to the thought that we have. Where do people get these crazy ideas, these crazy teachings about healing? Verse 16 says, When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Now, look at verse 17. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now, here you have one of the scriptures that's used, a false interpretation of Isaiah as a place where they get this. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And from that passage, faith healers will say that the the atonement of Christ included physical illnesses. Now, it's certainly true that Isaiah does have a view towards the atonement. I mean, he's speaking here about Christ suffering for sin on the cross. So how does Matthew apply that, and why does he speak about this concerning the ministry of Christ? Well, we have to note Matthew's purpose. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the Messiah, and this passage that we just read in Isaiah, that's agreed by all. This is a messianic passage. In other words, we have something here in the Old Testament that tells us about the Messiah that's coming and what the Messiah would do. So if Jesus comes and he's doing the Messiah's work by healing people, then he must be truly the one that God has sent. But does this mean that there's healing and that's a part of the atonement? Well, let's think about it for just a minute. What happened when Christ died for sin? When he died for sins... Those who believe in him have their sins taken away. When you believe in him, your sin is removed. The guilt of your sin is completely done away with. Now, that's what happens to you in justification. Our guilt of sin is removed, and what that means to us is that we're no longer condemned of any sin. Now, let's think for just a moment. If we take this, and if there's an equivalent thing that happens with sickness in the atonement, then it would mean that the removal of sickness should be as complete as the removal of sin. Now, do you see where that's going? So if the same is done for both, then you couldn't be a Christian and have any sickness. Now, it wouldn't be a matter of whether you had enough faith or not. The faith leader would have to say to you, well, you're not saved if you're sick. If you've been justified in Christ, you can't be sick. Well, if he does that, then he doesn't have any more customers. All the saved can't be all of the sick. And so, therefore, the faith healer has to save them at the same time that he heals them. And conversely, if we say that healing is in the atonement and Christians are sick, then we're saying that they just need more faith. And that would mean then that their justification is incomplete. They don't really have the removal of sin. So part of the guilt still remains. What's true of one has to be true of the other. So if there is partial healing then that would mean there's also partial salvation. And if there's full justification, then there also has to be full healing. See, that would be automatic at the point that you got saved. Now, we know then that that actually flies in the face of everything that's in Scripture. I mean, we just have to look at Paul again. What do we say about Paul? Well, Paul, your salvation is incomplete because you got sick. And Timothy, you're part reprobate because you have an illness. And Epaphroditus, you must have a faulty faith because you're sick, as the Scripture says, nigh unto death. Now, it seems quite odd that Paul would say, I will take this sickness 
gladly. I take it gladly in order that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And it seems strange that Paul would say about Timothy that there was no person who was like-minded in the faith as him, that he sought the salvation of people's souls. And then he talked about Epaphroditus, and he said, he's a soldier of the cross. And so what you need to do, you need to hold him up in reputation. Do you think that the Scriptures would make examples of people that didn't have real faith? None of that sounds like a faith healer. He says, if you have faith, then you'll be healed. And all that is is a cop-out for his failures, because if you aren't healed, all he says to you is that you didn't have enough faith. It's not my fault. You just don't have enough faith. Now, the real truth of the matter is they're not men of faith themselves. And you might think that this next statement is a little bit too strong, but I'll tell you this as well. They are false prophets. And hell will burn seven times hotter for people who tell those kinds of lies. So if you want to count on something as a Christian, you can count on this. You can count on adversity. It's not going to be easy. It's not smooth sailing and fair weather for Christians. And in fact, folks, the real miracle of Christianity is that you can find any believers at all when the true gospel promises hardship, not healing for your faith. And we're going to see that when we get to the next verses. There we're going to see in in this 8th chapter that there is a cost in following Jesus. And if you're unwilling to count the cost to follow him, then I would encourage you. You go after Joel Osteen, and you follow Kenneth Copeland, and you follow Joyce Meyer, and you follow Benny Hinn, because there's always room for gold diggers on their path. Now, I need to finish very quickly today, so stick with me just a little bit longer with a third observation, and that is the comfort of the Savior. You see, what I've said so far does not seem to be very comforting, does it? I've talked about hardship, adversity, the certainty of suffering. We have a promise that we're going to die. And none of that sounds very good. And this is where you have to know what Jesus is really after. Jesus is after the sinner, not the sickness. And what he's interested in is taking the whole man to heaven and not just making you comfortable on the the earth. So there is a way that we can find comfort in what I've said today. Let me give you a couple. The first one is, Jesus has the ability to fix the body. Now you just look at all the things that he did here to the bodies of people that were sick. That tells us something about his power. Uh, these miracles are done right after he came down from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, people were asking the question, why should we believe him? Where does he get his authority? He healed from the worst disease of leprosy. He worked in the life of the worst outsider, that was a Gentile. And he worked in the life of the worst insider, and that was a Jewish woman. So he has power over sickness and power over death, and his supernatural abilities kept shouting this out, he is God. And friends, if he's God, that means that he can take care of your sin problem. It means that he can cure you from the greatest problem that you have, the sickness in your soul, and the Bible even goes beyond that. It calls it death in your soul. And that death leads you into the fires of hell. Now, you see, you need to recognize that sickness is a result of sin. And so, if he can take care of sickness, then he must be able to take care of the cause of that sickness. And if he can root out disease, then he must be able to root out the cause of that disease. You need a Savior, and you can take comfort in this fact that he saves from sin. His death on the cross was payment for sin, 
And if you believe in him, all of your sins, all of them will be taken away. Not one of them will be remembered again. And he can fix the body supernaturally, and he can fix the problem that's down in your soul. Now, secondly, you can take comfort in this, that he has the ability to fit the body. Are you worried about your body? Are you sick? Are you wasting away? You know, I I don't know about you, but I like this body pretty well. I mean, if you were as handsome as me, you'd love your body too. And, and uh, we don't have to worry about this. I mean, you really don't have to worry about your body. The Bible says it grows old, it'll shrivel up. And like I said earlier, you do have the promise that you will die. But you don't need to despair because if you are a child of God, God is not through with your body. He tells us that we're going to lay it down at death and the soul and the spirit is going to go into heaven. But it does not mean that God has forgotten about your body. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to redeem the whole person. And so your body that's subject to disease, it's subject to aches and pains, and to this feebleness, it will succumb to death. But the believer in Jesus Christ is going to receive a glorified body. This body is going to be raised from the grave incorruptible. And it'll be fashioned like a body, like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect in every detail and perfectly fit for heaven. You see, as much as you love your body now, you don't want this same body to go to heaven. You don't want this body like it is to be in heaven. As good as you might feel right now, you don't want this body in heaven. Now, if you're looking for healing in the atonement, here's where you can find it. The healing in the atonement is future. Christ delivered us from sin in the atonement, but we still sin, don't we? And so the total fulfillment of that must be in the future. That's when the body is redeemed. And Christ has told us that he would conquer death. But we still die. We've already said we have the promise that we're going to die. And so that promise that we're going to conquer death must be still in the future. And when is that? That's when God raises this body from the grave. So a person who says that a Christian can't be sick because there's healing in the atonement also has to say that a Christian can't sin and a Christian can't die. But none of that's true. The complete healing of the atonement comes when the body is raised. And that's when we're healed of all of our sicknesses. And that is in the future kingdom of God. And so the body corrupts. It's sinful. This body is not fit for life in heaven. That's why you don't want it. You don't want a body that's still subject to sin. You don't want it still subject to disease. You don't want this body in heaven. So God has promised he's going to change the body. He's going to raise it incorruptible. No sickness, no possibility of ever dying again. Sin is conquered, sickness is conquered, death is conquered. And your body will be raised to rejoin your spirit in heaven and be made perfect just like Christ. And so what he does is he fits your body for everlasting life. Now when you think about these things... You have to believe and have to think about what a kind, compassionate Savior that we truly have. He saves from sin, and that's what he was always after. The Bible says he came to seek and to save that which is lost. He heals people with a touch, and he heals people with a spoken word. And the question for you today is, has he spoken to you? Has he touched your heart with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And if he has, friend then what you need to do is to surrender everything to him today. If you've been touched by God and healed from sin, 
Give everything to him. He deserves all the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the message that you've given us today. Lord, we know that Scripture says that there will be hardness. There's all kinds of adversity that's in our lives, difficulties that we encounter. But we have a Savior who is able to deliver us from that all. And we thank you, Lord, that we have a Savior who helps us to get through everything that we experience in this life. And we, we have the hope that there is this life in heaven. Our bodies will be raised and made incorruptible to be just like Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would help people not to be discouraged because of sickness that is in their body and not to be discouraged because we don't find healing in the atonement today. But take heart in that there is healing in Jesus Christ for all eternity, and that's when he raises this body from the grave. Lord, we thank you that you're going to change us. We praise your name for that. Be with our people today. Speak to some lost sinner. Show them the gospel of Jesus Christ and how they can be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.